All right, one o'clock on the dot. Hello, <laughs> and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Raymond Ibrahim, the Judith Friedman Rosen Fellow here at the Middle East Forum, and a Shulman Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, join us to discuss the plight of the cops, Egypt's Christians. Uh, Mr. Ibrahim will speak for 10 to 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We'll do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on this webinar, so I apologize in advance if you do not get to yours today. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Raven Ibrahim. Uh, thank you, Stacy, and uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, so I've been asked to talk a little bit about the Coptic Christians and give you an overall general view of their um, situation, which is not exactly enviable. Um, so let's just start real quickly with the etymology, the word Copts. What, what does that mean? Where does it come from? Um, it essentially is just another word for Egyptian. It comes actually from the same Greek root that we get the English word Egyptian. Aegyptos, we pronounce it Egypt. They, the Arabs came in and the, Egypt, the Egyptians were called Aegyptos and they just called them Gypt and that came and got translated into English as Copt. So basically you can see it's the same exact word as Egyptian. Uh, the reason now when you say the word Copt, it means Christian because, and that's indicative of you know the nature of the inhabitants that the Muslims actually, or the Arabs found when they came into Egypt in the seventh century, the natives were largely as a majority uh, Christians, Copts. So what is their situation? What happened? How did Egypt go from being a Coptic majority nation to a Muslim majority nation? Um, basically, if you're familiar with the concept of the dhimma, it's an Arabic word. It's where we get the other word dhimmi. We get some neologisms like uh, dhimmitud and all that. The word dhimma basically was, uh, and it goes, it stretches back into Islamic or Sharia law and the Quran has antecedents, and it's basically if you're a non-Muslim person of the book, which specifically means Jews and Christians, you are to, you can maintain your religion, but you have to pay a tribute, a jizya, and that has its own legal interpretation, but long and short of it is you pay it. Some people define it as a tax. You had to pay tribute tax, and you, but then you had to also accept a very inferior position in society as a Christian or a Jew. Uh, so, for example, there's a long list of what you can and can't do. You can't rebuild churches. You can't build new churches. This would also go for synagogues, of course, and any other other peoples also would fall under the Ahlidimma or Dimmi peoples, even though it wasn't, it wasn't technically applicable, but over the years, for example, even Hindus who are considered pagans or polytheists theists were given sometimes once when it was um, opportune, they were given that status as well. So it wasn't just limited to Christians and Jews. However, the point is it was still a second class citizen type thing. And um, it, it made just that alone, there was no social mobility really. Uh, you're not gonna get the good administrative jobs. You're not gonna be part of the military. So for example, one of the apologetics to rationalize the idea of jizya and the dhimma that comes out of academia goes like this. They say the reason Christians and Jews had to pay jizya tribute tax is because they were exempt from the military. Well, they were exempt from the military because they were infidels and no fighting Muslim engaged in holy war wanted a Jew or Christian next to him because they weren't 
trustworthy and it was bad for morale. That's why they were exempt. So that's just one quick aside. Um, anyway, so this has seen this, this system, which was entrenched in a nation like Egypt, but virtually all nations that got conquered by Islam um, and had uh, people of the book in them generally, have gone from being, for example, same thing in Syria, went from being really Christian majority in North Africa and Anatolia, Asia Minor, when the Turks came in. They all went from, of course, being Christian majority to Christian minority, Muslim majority. So that demographic shift is largely due just to that, this, this um, institutionalized form of discrimination. Now, put that aside, and then you also have sporadic bouts of persecution, outright persecution. So churches being uh, burned, I'm, I'm still being historical here, pre-modern era, but churches being burned, uh, cops and others being massacred. Other Christians, of course, and Jews and other non-Muslims were also uh, experienced the same sorts of things. But it's really good to talk about the cops because they're very paradigmatic of the overall situation because Egypt was such a heavy Christian region and that's why you still have about 10%, possibly more, arguably more, of Egypt is still Christian, um, which is very telling because if you look at other Christian majority regions like North Africa um, or Syria, certainly Asia Minor, Turkey, you can see that in those areas, Christianity has almost disappeared. So what we're watching right now in Egypt and discussing is actually a replay of history, and I'll get into that. So there was the bouts of persecution, the attacks, and all of this combined, the persecution plus the entrenched, thinly discriminatory, inherently discriminatory system, saw to it that people converted regularly. And this is why the demographic shift happened. It wasn't because uh, cops were being slaughtered, that there are no more cops, it's that most of the survivors would eventually convert to Islam. I'm reminded of uh, <clears throat> one of the primary sources for Egypt's medieval or pre-modern history is uh, his last name, he's a long Arabic name, but El Makrizi is what he's known as. I think he lived in the 1400s and he wrote about the Mamluk era, but he also wrote before that. And what I found striking is if you read his um, passages, and he, so he's still writing at a time where the cops or the Christians or the majority of Muslims are, but he'll, he'll give you long passages of there was an uprising, a Muslim mob went and burned the church, uh, or, or a Muslim mob went and slaughtered a Christian village and slaved the women and children. And you'll get a lot of these. And then at the very end, he'll say, and after these instances, many Christians came to the religion of Islam. So you'll get that very often. Um, and, and they're being straightforward. In other words, he's giving you the cause and effect, what the cause of the effect of their converting really was. Um, and like I said, we can't also under or minimize the dhimmi system because that one wasn't active persecution, but it really hampered and limited and degraded the non-Muslim to the point that so many of them, especially if you're not exactly pious about your religious heritage, are willing to uh, convert to the you know, so-called winning team. So that kind of thing goes on all throughout, uh, you know, again, during the medieval era under one particular caliph, the the Coptic language, which is really the uh, pharaonic language, it's written with different letters. It's used, they use the Greek alphabet um, with some different, about six or seven different characters, but it's very much linguistically rooted to the pharaonic language, which we don't really know uh, in and of itself. And it still exists in the liturgy, but it got to the point where in order to force the Coptic groups, the Coptic peoples 
to assimilate that they were threatened to cut their tongues out if they kept talking their language. So they had to speak exclusively Arabic. And that's why today Coptic, uh, Coptic is a liturg liturgical language only. Um, so you see that going on and on and then until the modern era and then so much changes and there's, you know, there's too much to talk about really. Um, but by and large, what happens is the, the plight of the cops, the plight of any non-Muslim <clears throat> living in a Muslim, <clears throat> excuse me, in a Muslim controlled nation or a Muslim nation, by the time the colonial era uh, began, you know, we're talking 1800s, primarily early 1900s, uh, it, that sort of fanaticism began to wane. And the reasons for that are very complex, but suffice to say, Islam was no longer um, an inspiring force for the local Muslim. And then that's where you start <clears throat> seeing Muslim populations trying to westernize. So you have Turkey, the standard bearer of Islam <clears throat> and jihad, or, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> for several centuries, Turkey, um, actually during, under Ataturk and during this secularization, they actually jettisoned the Arabic script. They adopted the Roman alphabet. Um, Islam was, you know, very separate from politics. And you see that in other countries, not as, not as, um, uh, as extreme as that, but also in Egypt, for example, you had nationalism became now the new thing, Arab nationalism, and, and, and religion was um, more or less uh, sidelined, which was good, of course, for people like cops and any other non-Muslim living in a Muslim majority nation. And that went on for a while. And, and, and during that era, so if you go back a few generations and people who were born, you know, turn of the 19th or 20th century, 1900s, 19, early 1920s, 30s, those people, when you talk to them, um, things like persecution is almost non-existent. Discrimination is still there. It's very minor, but things are, are, are a lot much better than they were in the pre-modern era that I was describing. Anyway, now we've come back full circle and we're starting to see um, the sort of pre-modern mentality resuming again. And one of the reasons for that, or and I don't know, it's the chicken or the egg, which, which, which caused which, but with President Sadat, for example, that's, it's well recognized, that's when things really start to get radicalized and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and the alliances that they would have back and forth, presidencies and these groups. Uh, the long and short of it, in the Constitution, you have Article 2, which actually says Sharia is the principal source of uh, legislation. Now, you can see how that's a problem for a non-Muslim citizen, like a Copt. Um, so right now, if you want to talk about the most obvious form of uh, discrimination that the Christians, the Copts are facing in Egypt, it has to do with, the, with their churches. And that's not surprising, because according to Sharia, straight Sharia law, as I mentioned earlier, you can't build a new church, you can't renovate a new church. And so in Egypt, churches are regularly, I almost want to say every other week, or sometimes every week, sometimes every month, and it's in different numbers, but I'm always seeing, you know, a Muslim mob rose up after Friday, Friday prayers against a church that was because it was adding a bathroom or it was building a Sunday school or because there was a rumor that someone was gonna build a church or because they found out cops who have no church were meeting in the house, having a church service. They rise up, create havoc, violence, sometimes deaths are, re are a result. And the authorities always respond by shutting down the church or just canceling whatever plans the Christians had. So this is very, very common. Okay, now that's the most obvious way. Having said that, Egypt also 
more sporadically, you will see the violence, really brutal persecution, inclu including, again, targeting churches. So I think Egypt in the entire world has probably witnessed more bombings by Islamic terrorists that have killed more people, I want to say, than anywhere in the world. Um, I even recently wrote an article and lists maybe six Islamic terror bombings, each of which took a dozen or two dozen. One of them took 50 lives in Palm Sunday, 2017. Um, so that's very, uh, that's not, it's not very common, but it happens uh, reg more regularly than anywhere else. And that's aside from the mob risings and the burnings that I just mentioned. And then you have the authorities who, instead of bringing justice, they just essentially appease the mob. And the reason they appease the mob is because they're Muslim too. They understand the law. They understand Sharia, what Sharia says about churches. And, um, you know, so whatever else the law may say about equality for all citizens, they turn a blind eye. And that's, uh, that's very common. And there's other now manifestations we can discuss. One of the bigger stories um, was a woman. <laughs> so she's a Coptic woman. And she's, I think, maybe late 30s, early 40s, has married three daughters, teenagers. And she's known to go to church. Her social media has crosses and pictures of Jesus and Mary and all this. And then all of a sudden she disappears and reappears a few weeks later after her family makes a big scene and gets a lot of media. And she appears dressed in black saying, and you can see there's people around her giving her cues. And she seems very scared saying, I'm now a Muslim, praise be Allah. I don't want you, my family to bother with me. Don't contact me, I'm not interested. I'm happy to serve Allah and, and that's it. Now the problem with that is what, is the, what do the authorities do? They do nothing. And, uh, and even though the church and the family and everyone's reaching out to them. Now, if you flip that around, it was the opposite. If a Muslim woman disappeared and it's in any way, shape, or even if it was voluntary and she had converted to Christianity and run off with a Christian man, let's say Coptic man, it would, it would be the end of the world in Egypt. It would be the biggest scandal. They would both be thrown in jail if not executed, especially by the mob and so forth. So you can see this sort of, um, you know, uh, obvious glaring discrimination going on. Um, and, you know, finally, to make this a little more applicable to events that we're seeing here and to really underscore what the cops are experiencing, we've seen protests in America recently, and there's been questions on, is the response too firm, too violent, or not violent enough? It's usually been, you know, you're, 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 don't be too violent, you gotta let them vent. So here's what happened in Egypt in 2011. Because of what I'm talking about, specifically the churches, and after the, I don't know, the umpteenth time that a church was either burned by a mob or banned, cops in the hundreds, if not thousands, got together in Maspero, Egypt, to protest. Very peaceful protest. They weren't looting. They weren't, they weren't burning anything. They weren't stealing. They just wanted to get attention from the media because Maspero is the media, media center. The government responded by unleashing tanks, armored vehicles that literally ran over them. We have pictures of their heads mangled, and at least two dozen were killed. Some were shot to death, including they found snipers hiding and targeting people. And so it's called the Maspero Massacre. Um, so that's just to give you an idea of what, you know, if, if you want to think about how minorities fare. So that's how the cops fared in Egypt in the context of, let's say, being um, trying to get your rights, being frustrated, and trying to protest. That's what happened to them. And, and just for the record, um, Obama, who was president at the time, his response to that was simply, now is a time for restraint from all sides, implying that the cops, this little minority that was run over by tanks, 
was needed to hold back because apparently they're an equal force of the Egyptian military and the Egyptian people. And he didn't even mention what had happened to them. So that's, that's, a, that's an aside. But um, so by and large, and I think I'm running out of time, this is the situation of the Copts, indigenous Christian inhabitants of Egypt, past and present. And unfortunately, the present is beginning to mirror the past. Thank you. Thank you so much for that fantastic information. I mean, horrible, but uh, very informative. Um, so you covered in depth what the current situation is, but can you speak on um, President El-Sisi's viewpoints at all on this? Sure, yeah. Um, so Sisi, um, unlike his predecessors, specifically uh, Muhammad Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood and Hosni Mubarak before him, uh, he has said many things that are very positive and good and seem, they seem sincere and at least they're courageous in the sense that he has called out his own religion saying we can't be a, a source of a scourge to the rest of the world. Um, you know, we have to do something about this. This isn't right, et cetera, et cetera. He's won a lot of, um, you know, praise from the Coptic people. The Coptic church seems to be very uh, closely allied with him or supportive of him. And of course, it was supportive of him when he came to power during the, essentially the coup where Morsi was overthrown. Um, and that led to, by the way, I think, you know, that led to something like uh, 70 or 80 churches being attacked and burned and torched. Most of them still haven't been rebuilt. Some have, I believe. Uh, so that was the price to side with him. But he's been, he's been vocally, it seems, on the right side. Having said that, there's a lot of criticism that he's just not doing much when it comes down to it. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of Coptic organizations who are very upset with him, they would say, and they think he's playing a two-faced, um, you know, Machiavellian, Machiavellian agenda. He's trying to, you know, he's, on the other hand, you know, objectively, it seems, um, you know, I can understand, I'm not trying to justify or excuse him, but it seems I can understand because what's happening in Egypt is not a top-down thing. It's a bottoms up thing. It's, it's a cultural thing. You know, these ideas, these anti-Christian, anti-Coptic, anti-church ideas, anti-Israel, you know, they don't come from the leadership. They're kind of in the ground. Um, and the leadership can either go along with it, like someone like Mubarak did, or certainly Morsi, or they can, you know, go against it. But how much, what, can, what are they willing to do? Um, so you can publicly say a few words, which is what he's done, but to actually fundamentally change it, which would be admirable and I'm not saying it's something that can't be done I think and I think there would be a lot of support for it because I think there's a lot of Muslims in Egypt who are moderate and who would like to see a sort of ease on this sort of radicalization that continues in that country so you know it's very um it's very ambivalent his approach but it's it's politically it's understandable I think uh what he's what he's doing so and, and if you talk to a, your cops a lot of them like him but some really dislike him and think he's the most uh you know machiavellian of them all he's like playing some deep game put shifting everyone against everyone thank you so you were talking about the media coverage do you think that um how muslim countries treat non-muslims is being covered enough or in depth enough oh not at all um every i pointed this out before i point this out for because i think it's it really makes the point, but since 2011, I've been writing a report for the Gatestone Institute about the persecution of Christians just in Muslim countries every month. So since 2011 to now, we're talking over 100 reports. Each one of them 
has at least a dozen, sometimes two dozen anecdotes from all around the Muslim world. Egypt usually figures in there. But every Muslim country that has a Christian population, and you see the same things that we're talking about happening habitually, and most of the people who are reporting it, it's either non-English languages or smaller uh, activist sort of websites and um, you know humanitarian websites. But for a large media to report it, it would have to be something amazingly spectacular, like a bombing that leaves you know 20 dead. But something like discrimination or kidnapping or you know the off murder, even though the person's screaming, I hate Christians, that won't make it. That's a shame. Or to put it in another way, real quick. Yeah. Those reports that I compiled that I was saying that rarely ever make it, any one of those, I believe if it was a Christian or a Jew doing this to a Muslim, they would make it on our media and they would be a big, big story, even if it's in the furthest areas of the world and not in America, I think they would, because they're trying always to balance and show you, oh, you see what you're hearing in the background about Muslims attacking people. Well, that's not true because see, here you go. You have one example, except that rarely, rarely happens. So what have the cops' attitudes traditionally been towards the Jews, both, both past and present? Past and present? Well, past, um, I'd say they, there, was a, there was a large Jewish population in Egypt and Alexandria, especially um, during the Muslim conquest. So there was obviously a Jewish um, population there. They both became Dimmis, or the people of the book. So in a sense, uh, they... You know, on the one hand, they could sympathize. On the other hand, they could be competitive with each other. And you see this very often where you have two Dhimmi groups um, under Islam, different ethnic or different, different religious groups, they become rather competitive. You see this, for example, in Spain, um, you know, who can curry the favor or be on the side of the leadership, the political power, the Muslims. Uh, so you've had that historically, but you've also had um, agreement um, in the modern era, I'd say uh, there's two views. The, I believe with Pope Shenouda, he actually, again, and this goes back, if you recall, I mentioned nationalism became a big thing uh, in the early 20th century. So during the nationalist era, and that's what he, I think he was born maybe 1910 or 20. Um, so he was raised in that idea where Egyptians are one people, where Egyptians, where it's, you know, the, the religious thing is there, but that's spiritual. Uh, so when it came to politics, they very much would just go along with whatever the Egyptian uh, public or, or state itself felt towards um, you know, the Jews in this case, uh, for example. Um, and, but I believe, I know, and I don't know too much, but I'm pretty sure he had some sort of ban that he didn't want uh, cops to go visit Jerusalem as a sort of protest against um, Israel. I believe that's been rescinded with the new pope. And um, more generally, the Coptic people in general, when you talk to them, are sympathetic. And they actually, um, when they look at Israel, the, the things that I'll hear is kind of like good for them. I wish we could do that. Because what, it, you know, what the Israelis did is they went and reclaimed their homeland and they live in it. So, well, the cops are actually living in, um, in their homeland, but it's occupied from their perspective, even though it's been almost 1,400 years, by another group. So it'd be great. And in fact, a lot of people, Muslims, will accuse cops of trying to create their own independent state in Egypt. And they'll even cite, you know, that they're trying to copy the Israelis or sometimes they're even getting aid from the Israelis, um, which of course is not true uh, because they're just in no position as a 10% minority to do anything like that. 
but yeah, the bottom line is that it differs who you're going to ask and, you know, but the church's position, like I said, has went from uh, the Shenouda one, which was a little more, um, you know, conservative, you want to say, to being a little more open, I think. Thank you. So are the cops multi-denominational? Uh, do they relate to any of the mainstream or not so mainstream Christian denominations, which we see in the U.S.? Yeah, so the cops are technically orthodox. Um, you know, like, like the Greeks and the Russians and the Eastern nations are part of the orthodox body of churches. Now, if you want to get technical, in, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, there was a break, again, probably over, over something that today we would call semantics. Um, and even the churches, the Orthodox churches have met together and unofficially said it is. And we do, we, we believe in the same exact thing. Uh, we just didn't word it the same way. It had to do with Christology and all that. Anyway, um, so no, they are Orthodox. But it's an interesting question because the cops in a way remind me of the Jewish people in that it's an ethnicity and a religion. So when you say copt, you know, it doesn't mean you're a church-going <laughs> Christian necessarily. It's an, it's, a, it's an ethnic designation in a way, but it also, of course, connotes the idea of a Christian, and a lot of cops obviously do follow the Christian faith. You know, so, but the long and short of it is they're, they're part of the orthodox denomination. Still muted. Um, so last question, this is probably a big one. And uh, what do you think is needed in your opinion to achieve real democratic change in Egypt and indeed other Arabic countries? <clears throat> well, like I said, one, you know, you have, the, you have the leadership, you have the schools, you have the media and they all play their role, okay? But then you also have the society. And that's why I'm saying, you know, that the radicalization is not limited to education, though it is there. There's a lot of schools that do teach, you know, hatred for Christians, hatred for Jews and Israel, Israel, publicly, okay? They're, they're out there in those, in those schools, and there's others that don't. The mosques, by and large, tend to gravitate towards what we would call radical, because it's the standard mainstream, of course, uh, interpretation. Um, so, you know, to change it, you would have to you know, first of all, you would have to change or moderate or, you know, do something with the core texts because Islam, like other religions, it goes on to certain books and what the books say, first and foremost, the Quran, but even more importantly, and, and, and I believe uh, this is what creates even more of the intolerance is the hadith, uh, the words and the sayings that are attributed to Muhammad, because these are countless and depending on which you like or which, you know, agrees with your perspective, you call it a sahih authentic hadith and now it basically has almost the same weight as the Quran so you have a lot of you know so uh, there's a hadith where Muhammad says if you meet a Jew or a Christian push him to the side in the road and do not say salam to them which clearly says you know don't become friends with them you, then you have the Quran which specifically orders Muslims not to be friends with and it names them Christians and Jews because if you do become their friends you become like them you become an infidel so you always have to maintain of social distance. And then, of course, you know, Quran 929, wage war on the people of the book, Christians and Jews, until they pay jizya and are humbled. Uh, so you have it, it's, as long as it's in the texts, it kind of, it's, it, you know, the, the leadership can do what it wants, and uh, schools can teach what, you, what, what they want. And I'm not minimizing that. I think that's good, and I think it's helpful. But as long as, you know, the Muslim can sit at home and open his texts, the, the, the Quran and the Hadith and the Sirah and 
all the writings by the early, you know, the, the, the four schools of Sunni law and all this, they're going to keep reading, you know, excerpt after, after excerpt that promotes hostility for non-Muslims. Uh, so it's, I don't, you know, and, and earlier, you know, the Orientalists and early historians would say this. I'm, I'm, remi I'm reminded of an uh, entry in the Encyclopedia of Islam that says, for jihad to end, Islam has to be remade all over from beginning to end. So, you know, uh, so does that mean I should say it's impossible? I won't, but I'll just say it's obviously very hard and it's not, it's not a top-down type thing as long as you have those books and those books say what they say. It's just hard to argue against it. Well, thank you so much. We've unfortunately come to the end. We have quite a few open questions still, so we'll have to have you come back and speak with us some more. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Stacey. Of course. Uh, for our viewers, please be sure to join in for Ashley Perry's weekly updates every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. On Friday, we have Wolfgang G. Schwanitz join us at 1 p.m. Eastern to discuss Grand Mufti Al-Hassani's influence abiding impact. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.